I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm your baby New Year 2020, the first one born in the Magnificast General Hospital. <laughs> and I'm Matt Bernico. I'm the old man. I'm old father time passing away <laughs> forever. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm glad you could be here with us, though, Father Tom. Yeah, you're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older. So. <laughs> and now you're older still. Yeah, think about um, that way. <laughs> we're back for our first episode of 2020 because we pre-recorded the last episode before we went off for Christmas. We did cheat by by recording an introduction uh, talking about our Christmas gifts, but this is the first time we've really sat down together to make a full episode this year. Uh, you've probably seen the news about war in Iran, so we decided to do an episode thinking through Christian responses to war. We'll look at how Christians have seen war as idolatrous, and we'll think about how socialists connect the peace movement and the struggle against capitalism, and then we'll end with some advice from Dorothy Zoila about how to connect Christianity and socialism together when it comes to anti-war politics. Would you believe it? We didn't even think of it first. But before we get that far, we have some bad news and some serious news that we need to talk about. Um, for the past two years, we did our first episodes of the year with John Thornton Jr., who was on our show just before we ran the episodes on the Christmas arc. Um, if you follow us on Twitter, you probably saw our thread from a few weeks back about John and the accusations of sexual misconduct. If you didn't see it, and that sentence is a bit shocking, you can go read the article that's published about it in Indie Week. It's a pretty tough situation, but we want to make sure that we're just upfront about it. And um, Dean, do you want to read what we said on Twitter? It's a good statement. Yeah. Yeah, we said, on the Magnificast, we try to think about what it means to say that another world is possible. We think that world includes believing women about their experience. We support the woman involved, and it's important to make that clear and unequivocal. Any evaluation of the situation needs to center and affirm her experience, claims, perceptions, and concerns. We won't say much more because we're not part of the personal lives of John or the woman involved, and we're not in the Jubilee community. But we can say it matters that we take these accusations seriously on the left, even and especially when it's difficult. We're aware that Jubilee is going through a restorative process with John, which they say they don't take lightly. We hope that the process is just honest and open. And we haven't heard anything about that or anything since we made the thread. So uh, just being upfront about that, I think, is an important way to start off the episode, um, start off the year. Yeah, well, um that is a pretty rough way to start a podcast, but it is important. Um, so uh, there it is. We don't want to cheapen that whole thing at all, um, but we couldn't think of a good way to transition out of it, which is, uh, you know, on brand. Um, yeah, so it's just going to be awkward and weird, and we're going to leave it out there. Um, you know, living in the tension of these things is, I guess, just what you have to do. Um, but to try to lighten the mood a little bit. No, it's awkward. It's terrible and awkward, but we're going to do it anyways and power through. Um, we're going to lighten the mood a little bit with some deep and burning questions from the pious Christians of red.com. And then we're going to talk about war, man. This episode's all over the place emotionally for me right now. <laughs> yeah. It's just a really great way to start off the new year, uh, but we're right. going to do it. We are going to do it. Okay. So Dean. Yeah. This question, I think my favorite questions from reddit.com are questions about heaven. Uh, those are always, I think, the funniest because people have some real wild ideas about that, about uh, those big pearly gates. 
Yeah. So good. here is um, this one's fresh off the presses. It's from 14 days ago, and mm. uh, so so you're gonna These be are some Christmas um, time thoughts. <laughs> yeah, someone was sitting around. Um, well, it is particularly with this one actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's the question. There's no body. There's just a there's just a title, and uh, we're gonna have to kind of infer maybe some meaning here, but we'll see how it goes. All right. So the question is: Will there be off? Will there be offline single player games in heaven when we die? Because I love offline single player games, <laughs> and will we have them in heaven? <laughs> mm-hmm. This question gets a little bit away from the question asker, but um, I think it's a good question, and I'd love to know what you think, Dean. Um, being the sort of expert, I, I don't know. Uh, Protestants, we don't have a great sort of theology of heaven. It's like, you know, God's there or, or whatever. Um, we don't know. But uh, Catholics, you guys got it all going on up there. You you, you know what's in heaven. So uh, will there be offline, offline single-player games in heaven, do you think? Man. What a big theological question, a huge conundrum. Uh, I don't think my theological studies have prepared me for this, but I do think, now that I think about it, thinking about the Catholic tradition and this question, I feel like purgatory is really one offline single-player game. So whether or not we'll have them in heaven, you will have to beat one to get there. (laughs) Which game will you have to beat, do you think? (laughs) It is. It's just the game of purgatory. It's offline and it's (laughs) single-player. Okay. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, it's weird that what, uh, what about online games though? Do they have those in heaven? The world wide web in heaven? I'm not so sure. Uh, it would have to accommodate such a large world, such a large wide world. Uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> uh, is heaven, um, hey, hey teens, I heard you like World of Warcraft. But let me tell you about a real <laughs> multi, uh, massively multiplayer online game in, uh, big cloud called heaven <laughs> that's right the big cloud when you die you go to the big cloud uh and you play world of lord craft <laughs> world of lord craft is probably already uh a sort of trademarked term by zondervan but yeah i do like that a lot it's very funny <laughs> yeah yeah that's right um so to find this question particularly on our christianity i had i just searched the word game in the oh, search nice. bar and i cannot tell you how many posts there were that were like do you think heaven will be like skyrim where you can kind of have adventures there's like more than one that was asking that question and i thought that was just amazing that's a reoccurring trope for the uh the the young gamers of our christianity it's such a weird yeah, idea yeah. but yeah what are the fetch it. quests like in heaven yeah i don't know can you become a vampire now that's what i want <laughs> that's heaven Bring for me, me three golden <laughs> bars and i will <laughs> Ensure that you get your angel wings. <laughs> that's the Archangel Raphael. Yeah, that's you did his voice just like it says in the Bible. Yeah, I know. I know. I read it a lot. <laughs> the Yeah, okay, great. Hey, here's another one that you're going to love. This one, I think, is uh, particularly suited for us and our, um, our, our uh, pro-cursing, our big pro-cusp uh, <laughs> yeah. brand. So Good. this is from three months ago, so it's still pretty relevant. Um, uh, here it is. I know swearing or cursing at people is a sin, but mm. if those words are directed to nobody and I'm just <laughs> and I'm just telling them in the air like, oh, <laughs> fuck, I died in the game. Are they still a sin? <laughs> uh, will they be, still be a sin in heaven is uh, really combining <laughs> the, the previous question here. Um, right. Wow. If you're playing an offline single player game in heaven, you do die. And you said, oh, fuck. Yeah. What is going to happen? Oof. This is a tough one. Uh, If you're telling them in the air and there's nobody around to hear them, uh, hmm, how long does a swear word hang in the air such that someone might Mm. accidentally walk through it and it would turn into a sin if they heard it? Um, Right. I mean, we are pro-cussing on this podcast. Uh, I feel like cussing in private... um, I can. I have no choice other than to affirm it. Uh, I can. I can definitely imagine a lot of the apostles, for instance, swearing in private mm-hmm. uh, under their breath, wandering around, following Jesus around, not knowing where the heck they're going, and uh, uh-huh. just letting out a little cuss here and there. And is that a sin? I don't think so. I think that's just part of what it means to be a human being. Yeah, probably. All right, <laughs> we did it. We got those we questions it. done. Um, I'm just really wondering about these offline games in heaven, though. Oh, boy. 
I'm going to ask. See. Yeah, you know, I started going to a new church, and I'm going to ask my pastor that. Then the we're going to an Episcopal church, so he's not a pastor; he's a priest. Um, but I'm going to ask him. That's going to be my introductory question to him. That's great. Um, right before you, you take uh, the Eucharist, you should ask that question. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is the um, this is the most high church I've ever been to. I think. Uh, I mean, barring the times I've visited a Catholic church or whatever, but they <laughs> yeah. they make you go up to the um, the rail and you have to either you have to kneel and they give you the bread. No, oh, it's this whole right, thing. Right. But as he gives me the bread, I'm just gonna be like, uh, "Are there often gifts in heaven?" Thanks. And then uh, we'll see what he says. Yeah, that's good. Uh, there's so many ways you can play it. I mean, you can whisper it. You can ask the priest to come closer. You could uh, make a sign, a small <laughs> sign ahead of time, and just pull that out from behind your back. Uh, just really, so it could be really <laughs> subtle, you know. And you could yeah, just get uh, basically a, a nod, yes, or a, a shake of the head, no. Right. And I'm sure that, I mean, that's kind of <laughs> the traditional time to ask questions is yes during Eucharist. So I think I'll just go yeah. and do it then. But in a tasteful way, tasteful question asking right. during the Eucharist. You yeah, don't want to disrespect yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. Well, all jokes aside, though, the Episcopal Church is good. I'm into it right now. So it's cool. Yeah. Uh, pretty soon you'll be Catholic. Just wait. Happens I mean, to the best of us. Yeah, might as well be. They're they're doing it all there anyways. So. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, continuing to lighten the mood, um, I guess we should talk about war. <laughs> uh, just uh, again, an emotional roller coaster of a podcast here. Uh, this past week, though, um, you might have heard that the U.S. assassinated uh, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, super butchering the pronunciation of that name, I know, uh, but he is an Iranian general in Iraq. Uh, he was in Iraq at the time when he was assassinated. Uh, in response, anti-war activists took to the streets and marched to show their opposition to further U.S. military aggression and a war with Iran, and that was both in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. Um, people around the globe don't want a war in Iran. Surprise. Uh, if you keep up with the news cycle, you'll know that the story has developed a lot since then. It's definitely probably going to develop uh, in the next few days, just today, before we did this podcast. There's been... Uh, the U.S. is trying to um, pin a, uh, a downed airplane on the Iranian government. Um, so anyway, uh, just the hits are going to keep coming. But rather than focusing on the specifics of the conflict, maybe we can do that later or something, we thought that we'd spend some time talking about how Christians have responded to war and how socialists might intervene in those responses. Because at the end of the day, the specifics don't matter. War is bad, plain and simple. Uh, how and why? We're about to find out. Uh, Matt, um, you were uh, consulting the Christian tradition today. Uh, what did you come up with? <laughs> That's right. I did open the big book of Christian tradition and took a, a look at the the back, the index, and I looked up war. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Well. Okay. So there's a lot of ways, kind of into um, the you know the ways that people think uh, that Christians think about war and violence, and those ideas are really kind of um, usually presented together um so uh to kind of get into this though i was kind of thinking back to the to the days when i was really convicted by the idea of christian like nonviolence and pacifism and um you know kind of reading through some of it again it makes me i don't know it's still good it's still a good thing to think about um i do love not hurting people so that's um that's great that makes me super interested <laughs> yeah so i was just kind of going back through like so like the authoritative sources for like nonviolence in the bible uh, especially in the new testament and then I looked at some things in the early church and uh, and on from there. And I think what's interesting, though, is that, you know, um, Christian nonviolence gets interpreted from the Gospels um, in some interesting ways, but then it gets um, re-elaborated in the early church uh, in some sort of different ways um, that are pretty different from socialist reasons to be anti-war. So um, let's just take a look at some of those. Um, so just like to kind of get into, into the... Um, into the stuff here, into the Bi- into the Bible. Let's get into the Word here. Um, there are a handful of uh, like nonviolence or pacifist sort of Bible verses that people use, and you're probably kind of familiar with them if you've ever you know been to church or read a book or <laughs> read the Bible. I don't know, um, but maybe we can kind of like walk through them. So uh, one that's used quite a bit is Matthew five thirty eight, and it goes a little something like this: You've heard it said. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So this is the famous sort of turn the other cheek uh, line from Jesus. And um, this is uh, usually interpreted. uh, This is usually interpreted to um, 
support a type of pacifism that, you know, if someone hurts you, suffer their um, violence and just, you know, let them keep on um, violencing. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways. I mean, people have worked out uh, some different uh, exegetical commentary stuff on this passage, and I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to get into it. But um, anyways, it's one, one use it's had is to sort of support nonviolent positions. Um, other than that, in Matthew and in Luke, another line comes up that is um, uh, pretty well known as well. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Um, later in Matthew, when Jesus is going to, um, about to be arrested, one of the disciples pulls a sword and tries to sort of resist the rest. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword sort of a big definitive and prophetic moment. Uh, so Jesus is discouraging his disciples from um, protecting him uh, with force. And that's, again, another non-violence sort of Bible verse. And then finally, um, we got the the big good one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God from Beatitudes in Matthew. Um, so all of these, uh, you know, Bible verses, you have to have a sort of a nonviolent hermeneutic to kind of draw these all together to stitch together a type of anti-war outlook. But you can kind of see that, like, Jesus has a lot of things to say about violence and he's not a huge fan of it. Um, he's got, like, you know, um, a handful of sort of different ideas about, uh, violence and how it should work out, uh, sort of interpersonally. But, uh, there, Jesus doesn't say a lot about, uh violence in terms of, uh, you know, 21st century military conflicts. So there's some things that are <laughs> left up to the interpretations of the people who are reading these. Um, so Dean, that, that's what we got on the table here. That's the Bible. That's the, uh, not, not the entire thing. Obviously that's just the new Testament and nonviolence. Um, as I'm reading through those things and knowing that you also have had some, uh, <laughs> some inclinations in the past towards Christian pacifism, what, what are your big reflections and thoughts, uh, this side of the, Christian pacifist uh, chasm. <laughs> that's, yeah. the, that's the weird piece of geography I've associated with it. Yeah, right. The pacifist chasm, a uh, very important part of uh, many people's spiritual geographies. Um, yeah, I, you know, all right, I'm not a pacifist anymore, but uh, I am anti-war and I don't believe that violence is a good thing. Even though I'm not a pacifist, I still kind of have that opinion. The violence is bad, even if you sometimes good you have to do it. Yeah, I hope so. I think so. <laughs> uh, I mean, all my opinions are good, but that one especially. Um, <laughs> I think the one thing that's really fascinating is that the Bible does have some really strong and important words to say about violence and we should be attentive to them, right? Like, not just as Christian people, but even as uh, people who are invested in um, peacemaking and that kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned these are just from the Gospels, but there's like a lot of great verses in the biblical prophets as well and from uh, the Jewish scriptures about, uh, you know, the, the wars that nations make and how they're very bad and wasteful and useless and all those kinds of things. And God becomes yeah. the sort of ultimate judge of the fact that all that violence is, is senseless and not something that we should be doing. Uh, so I think, you know, you don't have to be a pacifist to appreciate the thrust of, of peace in the Bible and to really feel like that's ultimately where things are heading, uh, hopefully, in a, in a Christian hope toward a peaceful future, as difficult as that is to imagine. And I think it's it's important that we try to open ourselves up to those reminders that it's ultimately peace that we're after, because especially on the left, it can be, I think, easy to A, get overwhelmed by war and B, feel like peace is a completely um, foreign thing that will never arrive. And Christianity does call us to reflect on that in our spiritual life, which can be a difficult but important discipline. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, it's a good way to frame it. Uh, yeah, nonviolence, I mean, uh, is a, I mean, it's like a hard sort of philosophy to follow. And especially as some of the other Christian folks will be talking about, uh, they, ex they um, explain how difficult it is. But uh, all in all, peace is uh, the goal. So it's good. good. Okay. So like I said, though, um, you know, Jesus isn't necessarily talking about uh, a 20th century war, or he doesn't even talk about war, you know, particularly. Um, uh, but Dean, like you said, some, you know, there are other sources in the Old Testament that do. Um, kind of taking the the tradition of scripture and the way that people have read it as a whole, though, like the um, the early church had some really particular ideas about military service that um, I think would probably maybe surprise people if you're not familiar with the history of the early church. Um, 
so uh, I found a, a cool quote from Tertullian, who's one of the, like those early church father kind of folks. Um, and uh, I, I think that, I mean, y- you know, this is like sort of pre-Roman empire. Um, and I think that like this idea expressed here is not super uncommon in some of the early church stuff. I mean, it's not uh, always uh, unanimously that, but it's a pretty common sentiment in some of the early church uh, writings. So again, from Tertullian, um, this is from uh, something called On Idolatry, and it's a section called Concerning Military Service. So this is what he says. One soul cannot be due to two masters, God and Caesar, and yet Moses carried a rod, and Aaron wore a buckle, and John the Baptist is girt with leather, and Joshua the son of Nun leads a line of march, and the people warred. If it pleases you to support with a subject, um, but how will a Christian man war? Nay, how will he serve even in peace without a sword? which the Lord has taken away. For albeit soldiers had come unto John and had received the formula of their rule, likewise a centurion had believed, still the Lord afterward in disarming Peter unbelted every soldier. No dress is lawful among us if assigned to any unlawful action. So the idea here is that uh, Christians shouldn't uh, serve in the military. That's Tertullian's take. Um, and uh, it comes in this like larger... Um, like essay, treatise, whatever you want to call it, on idolatry. And it's kind of interesting to find it in, within that context because you might think of, um, you know, like when you read uh, Jesus and his sort of ideas about um, uh, nonviolence, it might have to do with like, you know, peace or a, a, a sort of idea of humanism or like, you know, all people are made in the image of God or something, you know, really focusing on the people that might get hurt in war or hurt in violence. But in some of the early church stuff, and uh, I think as we'll see in, uh, in in other iterations of Christian nonviolence and Christian anti-war stuff, the focus isn't necessarily on peace or on humanism, but it's instead on um, idolatry. That's kind of one of the themes that emerges. So it's like um, at the very beginning, Tertullian says, you know, you can't serve two masters, God and Caesar, in the sense that like, you know, you can't say that you're a Christian and that ultimately, you know, God's uh, the thing that you really care about in your life, while also like ultimately taking orders from the state to kill, you know, whoever. So it's about like who has kind of ultimate, the ultimate say over what you do. And that's a really interesting way to interpret military service and like the the problem of war or why war is like ultimately bad. But uh, it's a little bit more complicated than just like, you know, killing people is bad. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting way of trying to figure out, does calling yourself a Christian actually have any sort of bearing on the decisions you make and the kinds of things that you're willing to do and not willing to do? And I think that's a pretty fascinating thing. And like you said, this isn't exactly totally unanimous among the early church, but it's a lot more prevalent than people would think. Uh, the early Christians weren't exactly known for being uh, good volunteers in the military, um, to say the least. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's something that Christian pacifists, if I learned anything from them, uh, they're very good at finding these places in early church uh, history where Christians do seem to have uh, a pretty strong case against participating in the military, just like they have a strong case against being, uh, you know, a a loyal subject of the Roman Empire that killed Jesus, for example, Uh, Mm -hmm. seeing these things as being in contradiction, that your your kingdom is of a different world or something, and so you can't really sign on to everything that the kingdoms of this world do or say. Uh, And I think there's something compelling about that, even if we want to say more about it or recognize, like you said, the distance between the early centuries uh in rome in christianity's development and you know today and after the period of like total war in the first and second world war uh still it's a helpful way in some ways to think about how christianity does make certain claims on your life and when it comes to living in places like we do in say the united states or canada or many other parts of the world um those claims probably mean that you should uh i think anyway (laughs) uh think twice about signing on with empires that are built around um you know causing totally uh undue and unnecessary suffering around the world yeah that's good uh this is a side note and maybe it's a stupid one but i'll say it anyways because i don't know that's my job in this podcast (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to give this the stupid side notes. Um, this kind of Tertullian stuff, um, you know, it's expressed other places too, like more contemporary places. Um, I don't know, like Shane Claiborne kind of things or, or whatever, more like progressive Christians that have something to say about war. 
Um, I remember reading this though, um, th- this quote from Tertullian and like these, this sort of genre of Christian writing when I was kind of mm-hmm. moving from being a, you know, evangelical kid to, um, in some way interested in nonviolence, um, yeah. and politics. Anyways, this is like the, the rhetoric of this, uh, the rhetoric of this, uh, type of thing where idolatry is sort of like what's at stake with war was really appealing to me. Um, because I mean, like we said in previous episodes and other places too, that evangelicalism doesn't instill, you know, this feeling that, you know, uh, you need to take the Bible extremely seriously. And like, that's what it means to be a good evangelical is to care about the Bible among all things. And here's Tertullian saying like, well, if you really care about God, you wouldn't care about the state, right? Like if you were really into God, the state would be like not a thing that you were into. And that was like a huge pivotal moment for me, kind of like, Mm -hmm. um, in my political awareness, um, I don't know if it, if it works that way for you too, but uh, I just remember this being like a big deal. Yeah, definitely. No, I remember that being a, a huge discovery uh, as well. Um, <laughs> it also leads you to some bizarre politics sometimes, but uh, one thing, for example, like I went to an evangelical college uh, and so did Matt, and I remember uh, the military would come by and try to recruit students because what a great <laughs> field for recruitment, a bunch of Christian conservatives uh, yeah. trying to figure out how to be more Christian and more conservative. Um, and uh, at, I was there at, at the time when I was kind of having these discoveries about the church's voice about peace and nonviolence. And uh, one time when the military came to do a, a recruitment thing, uh, I and some other uh, friends of mine into this kind of stuff printed out like a bunch of sheets of paper with all these quotes of different Christians being anti-war and passed them out alongside these uh, military recruiters passing out literature. And it like created a really bizarre conversation on campus on the one hand because it's a extremely weird thing to do. Uh, but on the other hand, because it does actually force you to reckon with this, right? Of like, well, if you're a Christian person at a Christian university, then uh, what are you supposed to do with these kinds of texts and these kinds of people? Uh, the Bible has a certain voice. Um, the early Christians have a certain voice. And it does seem pretty clear that uh, at the very least, you have to sort of deal with this. Um, you can't just sort of wish it away, um, yeah. which I feel is even true for me now as a person who's not a pacifist. I feel challenged by it. Um, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. Man, I remember one time in my evangelical Christian college, <laughs> there wasn't a military recruiter on campus, but there is this like flagpole. And uh, one time someone took the flag down, turned it upside down and put it back up. And it was like oh, this boy. huge scandal. And uh, a lot of people were like really upset about it. But then like some people are like, well, like, why do you even care? It's like not our flag. It's not the Christian flag. <laughs> it's these like weird ways that evangelicals like almost get the point, but then miss it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, let's talk about a more contemporary pacifist, uh, because it's helpful to recognize these parts of the early Christian, uh, church, but again, kind of dealing with the problems of, uh, you know, the invention of mass death on a military scale or in a military way in the 20th century, Christians also had to sort of rethink what this would mean. And some people that meant not being a pacifist, but for others, it it meant being a pacifist for pretty costly reasons or in costly ways. So one of the most famous is Dorothy Day, certainly not alone in this position as a Christian. Uh, But in 1936, uh, she had a pretty significant uh, thing to say in the Catholic Worker newspaper about war. Um, And I'll say more about that in a moment, but let me just read it. It's kind of long, but um, bear with me. It's not too long. So she says, the Catholic Worker is sincerely a pacifist paper. We oppose class war and class hatred even while we stand opposed to injustice and greed. Our fight is not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. We oppose also imperialist war. We oppose, moreover, preparedness for war, a preparedness which is going on now on an unprecedented scale and which will undoubtedly lead to war. The Holy Father, Pope Pius XI, said in a pastoral letter in 1929, and since the unbridled race for armaments is on the one hand the effect of the rivalry among nations, and on the other cause of the withdrawal of enormous sums from public wealth, and hence not the smallest of contributors to the current extraordinary crisis, we cannot refrain from renewing on this subject the wise admonitions of our predecessors, which thus far have not been heard. We exhort you all, venerable brethren, that by all the means at your disposal, both by preaching and by the press, you seek to illumine minds and open hearts on this matter according to the solid dictates of right reason and of the Christian law. And Dorothy Day ends the uh, her comments here saying, why not prepare for peace? 
Uh, and I think this is a, a pretty unpopular thing for Dorothy Day to say, right, because the U.S. emerged from the First World War with a certain budding national consciousness, um, somewhat unearned, but still important. And uh, it went into the Second World War with a extremely uh, mobilized uh, national consciousness, and that was centered around the war effort. So for Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker itself to come out against these kinds of things was a huge deal. And no doubt this is motivated by Catholic and Christian convictions, but Dorothy Day would also have been familiar with uh, communists and socialists opposing the First World War, the the left socialists and communists, that is. Uh, a lot of socialists, unfortunately, did not. Um, but she would have been aware of that legacy and also many of them who had opposed uh, the Second World War in the beginning as well, um, although many of them later uh, sort of backed off of that too. So anyway, all that to say, uh, it's a really fascinating example of kind of updating these Christian commitments in a totally different or significantly different militarized society. Um, I don't know, Matt, what else stands out to you in Dorothy Day's comments here? Right. Um, well, she's okay. So it's a, it's a, a type of pacifism. That's not just like doing nothing or not engaging. Right. It's not just like withdrawing from violence and then like sitting it out. Um, it, she's interested in a type of pacifism that is like, you know, active, um, active and resisting war, just the same, uh, later in an, in another, uh, article from the Catholic worker, uh, one that I, uh, we didn't include the notes here. She like she goes on to say that you know you have to be willing to like really like put your body on the line for these things. Like so, it's not like she's just um, picking up pacifism as like a way out of conflict or something, but she's talking about pacifism in a real uh, meaningful way. I guess I just want to make sure that's really known and that nobody's right. the wrong idea about Dorothy Day. Um, but yeah, I think it's like an interesting way of uh, talking about it. Um, you do get the feeling that she knows a little bit about communism and socialism because she talks about imperialism and that's not going to be something that's from Christians. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Uh, the thing that she says that's really most interesting to me is the thing about uh, preparedness for war. Um, so she mm. says, you know, we oppose moreover preparedness for war, a preparedness, which is going on now in an unprecedented scale. Um, I guess that, st that stuck out to me tonight when I was going through these notes because uh, on the way home from uh, work today, I was listening to NPR and man, NPR, it's, it's wild. Um, but they were talking about how the United States was on a war footing and how that was a huge problem because, uh, began a war footing. Uh, they're talking actually about it. Uh, they're talking about war footing, not in terms of Iran, but in terms of China. Um, the, they're saying that, you know, the, the United States is on a war footing, but they don't want to be on a war footing because if you sort of have that, have that war preparedness going on in your country, that makes you more likely to go to war, right? Cause like, if you're ready for something, you're going to, you know, follow through, um, with that thing that you're prepared for. But it's interesting, this, uh, this thing that we we oppose a, a war preparedness, um, that, you know, you shouldn't even be ready for war. You should be prepared for peace instead. And I like that a lot. That's a, I think a really solid idea and, uh, shouldn't overlook that bit. Yeah, that's right. I like, too, that she draws together being uh, against war, not only in this military sense, which is really obvious, but drawing that into class war and imperialist war. Um, you just mentioned that, too. But uh, the idea that pacifism would mean that you want to, you know, end the class war, for instance, I think is really good. Um, even, the one kind of hesitation I have is she says uh, opposing class hatred, even while standing against injustice and greed. Right. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Some class hatred is stuff you can't really oppose. <laughs> it just <laughs> sort of happens, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, right. But uh, nevertheless, the connection in, of class war to these other kinds of war and saying if you want to oppose you know, guns firing, you also need to oppose uh, the conditions that create um, antagonisms between capital and labor. I think that's really important to have a really yeah. robust peace movement. Well, let's just reframe that a little bit then. So it's not about the hatred of classes. It's about loving the it's lo about loving the bourgeoisie so much that you're willing to kick their ass until they get their <laughs> their whole act together. That's right. That's right. Or let them kick their own asses with the grave diggers that they have built, the proletariat. Yeah, of course. I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't know. I the 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 class hatred rhetoric um We'll probably turn off a lot of Christians, so maybe there's a good way around it. Yeah, maybe. But also, I mean, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. exactly. Um, well, maybe we could fast forward again to another big war in the U.S., and this is, I think, drawing us a little closer to our own moment. Uh, yeah. Daniel Berrigan. Dorothy um, Day is writing in the 30s, and Berrigan's writing in the 70s in this case, so that's the uh, yeah. time frame these are each coming from. 
Yeah, so uh, one dealing with the um, the big mass total wars, uh, and the other dealing with you know the new face of U.S. imperialism. Um, Matt, you found these two quotes. Uh, maybe you want to read uh, the first one, and we can slowly dive in here. Yeah, for sure. These are from a book called The Nightmare of God, the Book of Revelation. Um, okay, so this is what Daniel Berrigan says. War is a last-ditch moral nightmare. People begin worshipping a mysterious slouching beast, following after, bowing down, ordering gifts, making much of zero, and worse, love of death. Idolatry, fear of life, that roughshod trek of war and war makers throughout the world, hand in hand with death. Long live death. That's uh, Berrigan's thoughts about war. Man, Yikes. he's a good writer. What's up? What's up, Daniel Berrigan? Yeah, That's is. amazing. He's a poet. Uh, if you... If you don't know who Daniel Berrigan is, maybe it's worth just mentioning. Um, we've talked about him on the podcast before, but uh, he was a Jesuit priest. He died not long ago. Um, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. Anyway, recently. And uh, he was known for palling around with a bunch of other Catholics and anti-war activists who uh, engaged in all kinds of uh, very performative uh, anti-war demonstrations. One of the most famous being the uh, his participation in a group called the Cantonsville Nine, which included his brother, another priest, um, and then uh, a number of other Catholics who stole a bunch of Vietnam War draft documents and burned them with homemade napalm. And uh, Berrigan uh, fled the FBI for a while till he was caught. Um, and so anyway, all that to say, uh, he's got these very cool ways of writing about war, but he also, uh, did resist it in some very, um, amazing ways as well that are significant. So it's not like he's just, uh, using flowery rhetoric. Um, he really did put his body in the line for this stuff. Yeah, it's actually, that, um, is really important to the story. If you don't know that part, it does kind of, uh, you know, it couldn't mean nothing, but that, uh, he has the credentials is good. Yeah, I think so. Um, we can talk more about that quote that you read, but I want to bring in the other one too, because it helps us to uh, round out some of the conversation here and maybe pulls us in some interesting directions. So in the same text, Berrigan writes, every nation state tends towards the imperial. That is the point. Through banks, armies, secret police propaganda, courts and jails, treaties, taxes, laws and orders, myths of civil obedience, assumptions of civic duty at the top, uh, civic virtue at the top. Still, it should be said of the political left, we expect something better, and correctly. We put more trust in those who show a measure of compassion, who denounce the hideous social arrangements that make war inevitable and human desire omnipresent, which fosters corporate selfishness, panders to appetites and disorder, waste the earth. Uh, lots of good lines in this too, but uh, that idea that there's a real imperialistic appetite here uh, that the... Uh, the imperialist machine kind of has to keep feeding itself, I think is really important because Berrigan isn't, again, just saying that like killing people is bad, but he's also connecting it uh, to the fact that there's a, a material motivation for it. And there's something kind of almost intrinsic to the logic of nation states that forces them to kill people. So starting to poke a little bit deeper, I think here as a Christian person, uh, seeing what really drives war and motivates it. You also see the themes of idolatry come back up in uh, Berrigan's writing too, right? The, the people begin worshiping a mysterious slouching beast, that whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. You get the feeling that, you know, that's, that's what's going on here, that there's um, the, the supreme sort of thing that people care about is um, patriotism, nationalism, winning a war, you know, that whole sort of the, the mythos of um, the, the just war or something that, that overwhelms people. Um, and like he says, it's, you know, it, it might seem like supporting the troops. It might seem like, you know, being a patriot and loving your country. But what it means really is the love of death. And I think that Berrigan's right. Um, that that first bit there uh, that I read, is it really um, it made me think a lot about like what it was like uh, when the Iraq war started uh, when I was like in high school or whatever. You know, people were super patriotic and were really all about um, the war effort and, you know, um, really uh, excited about it even I had friends who were like really into it that, that like in high school that were just really excited that it was happening that they you know that this is like you know gonna get revenge for 9-11 or or whatever like weird uh, fantasy they had about it but they were like excited about it and you know um, framing it as not the the love of your country or even uh, seeking justice but the love of death I think is um, a really helpful turn that uh, is convicting yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 
Uh, we do have to move on to the socialist interventions, but because we're with Berrigan here, I think it's important to just take a moment, especially as we're thinking about anti-war demonstrations and mobilization and that sort of thing, to think about the anti-war movement in the 60s and then the 70s. Uh, one thing that's so fascinating to me about it is that some people write off anti-war demonstrations as being kind of useless or performative or totally uh, just for, you know, photo ops and that kind of a thing. Uh, but the fact is, historically, it's actually those kinds of things, even the ones that are liberal or something like that, um, it's those kinds of places, especially the anti-war movement, where the left starts to really find its voice and build itself, um, not magically or just kind of out of the mass automatically or something like that. Uh, but some of the most radical activists that came out of the anti-war movement then turned to socialist projects, uh, especially in the 70s and 80s. Um, even Christians, like uh, Christians for Socialism in the U.S., for example, uh, we've talked to Kathleen Schultz, the former um, general secretary, and uh, she says things like, you know, it, it really kind of rode off of the, the wave of the anti-war movement. People were looking for where to channel those organizing energies and strategies and tools that they had learned, and they started studying things like imperialism because of that commitment to opposing war and violence. So um, I think Berrigan is just a, a good kind of symbolic figure to uh, start going back to that moment and thinking through, well, how did they do it, and what were the links that were being made, and how could Christians become more recognizably politically active uh, nowadays? Yeah. Um, that's true. That is a really good point. That's, I think it's a really good rebuttal to the, you know, um, anti-war marches are just, uh, photo ops or whatever. Well, um, speaking of those criticisms, uh, in case you aren't really familiar, um, or maybe we can even take a step back and, and root the, the social intervention here in, in like what's actually been happening in the last few weeks. Um, so, you know, right after Soleimani is assassinated or murdered or whatever you want to say, I don't know exactly what the right term is. People have been throwing around a lot of things. Um, murdered. Why not? Assassinated. They're both good. Yeah, I mean, there were these, like, really quickly organized um, protests around the country. I went to one. It was really chill and fun. And we did march around and yell things. And it was great. Um, but uh, all that being the case, um, there's been, like, a, I don't know, like, I'm not... I'm not against all dissent and like all criticism, but I've heard a criticism of those types of protests where it's like, well, what are you really doing? Are you doing anything to stop the war? Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I'm like open to hearing those criticisms. I'm not really convinced by them just the same, but I think uh, the, the same things that, you know, Berrigan's talking about and Dorothy Day is talking about, you know, you have to be ready to build peace and preparing for peace are, you know, still questions people are really interested in answering and uh, talking about and socialists particularly, so the marches that were going on this past week, um, they were organized by all kinds of different groups. The one I went to had like four or five different organizers, you know, like um, there was like the Veterans for Peace and um, Answer Coalition PSL folks were, were there and that's fine and cool. And the DSA folks were there and there's, you know, all these other like uh, war resistor kind of people that are, you know, s small, small groups that are around for this kind of thing. Um and uh, I think it's interesting to hear them kind of talk about why they're there or why they think it's important to build a, a movement of anti-war people. Um, so uh, I thought it would be cool to, instead of starting from a, a socialist perspective, like a, a theorist or even from Lenin or something, it'd be cool just to hear like the, the statement of like an organization that's actually doing the work of anti-war uh, stuff in the United States. So uh, I just grabbed a, a quote from the Answer Coalition website that kind of characterizes like why they're doing this and like what is kind of the, the rationale behind it. Um, and then we can kind of talk about some more of the big socialist ideas after that. Um, but here it is. So this is from the Answer Coalition website. The working class of the United States has much more in common with the working people of Iraq and Iran than they do with their own government officials. When we say that we stand with Baghdad, it's because we stand with all workers and colonized people of the world. To answer the people of Chile, Bolivia, Venezuela, Iraq, Syria, and Iran, we stand in solidarity with you and your right to resist U.S. imperialism. Um, so here we have a, a different type of anti-war thinking altogether, right? So the Christian ones, I, I mean, you know, they're not always... Uh, sometimes we can we can attach a type of humanism to them, um, 
but they've been focused more on the relationship of like God and the individual's life or the God and the community's life. But here we have uh, a different sort of like orientation in anti-war and it's not about God, obviously because answer collision doesn't have anything to do with Christianity, but uh, it's uh, centering the worker as sort of like the, the primary motivation that, um, you know, uh, wars are fought for some like, you know, contentious political reasons that usually have big economic price tags on them and, and mean things to capitalists, you know, they don't mean to proletarians. Um, but what the answer coalition points out and like, you know, other socialists and anarchists and, you know, even just progressive um, commentators point out that like uh, wars, uh, you know, might be started by billionaires uh, and millionaires and uh, bureaucrats and all kinds of politicians, but they're fought by the working class people. And really, working class people of any country have more in common with one another than they do with you know the billionaires and politicians starting the wars. So that orientation, I think, is actually really helpful. Um, I, I mean, like something that can bolster the the Christian anti-war view, and obviously has in uh, Dorothy Day and in Daniel Berrigan's uh, writing. Yeah, I think so. I mean. <laughs> There's definitely a, a moment of solidarity that echoes this point, right? That there are people in different countries or the image of God shows up across countries and all that kind of stuff. And that's very good. Um, but this direct link to even your identity as a person who is involved in production uh, and other people around the world who are involved in production in different ways, I think is really helpful because it also helps you think about, well, if we were going to rearrange society, we would have to think about how to... Uh, build relationships between people who have uh, a role in producing um, in our societies differently, which uh, it's not that Christianity can't help you get to that point. Um, but the answer to the idolatry of militarism can't simply be, uh, and if we just, you know, gave up these false gods, then everything would be fine. Right. Uh, because that is not the case. Uh, it's a good argument for Christians and a good argument that Christians should make with other Christians and that kind of thing. Um, but it doesn't help us uh, build an anti-war movement that could sustain something beyond the the kind of uh, organization of society we have that demands war in the first place, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's a really good, I mean, what you just said is a really good argument um, for why Christians should pay attention to socialism and like that type of materialist analysis, because Christianity doesn't have analysis. It needs it. It needs it if you want to do yeah, right. that type of justice in the world. So uh, pay attention. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, we're, we're always saying this about Christianity, that like Christians need to listen to socialists because Christians have a hard time thinking about this stuff. Um, and I, sometimes I wonder if maybe we come across as like disparaging our own uh, religion and in some ways that's true. <laughs> it does bother yeah, me. It does drive so. me crazy. Yeah, uh, but um, I do feel also like I, I'm not trying to disparage Christianity by saying Christians should listen to other people. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to say, you know, it doesn't hurt us as Christian people to understand where other people have seen things that we might have a hard time seeing. And of course, there are good Christian reasons if you really need them uh, to care about the working class, although my guess is probably you don't. Uh, maybe you could care about the working class uh, for other reasons too, or kind of bring all these reasons together and not need to uh, privilege one over the other. But if you do, there are nevertheless good Christian reasons to care about what socialists have to say specifically and not sort of stay within the Christian register or rhetoric. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, in my experience with like hanging out with Christians, I think a lot of them do care about, you know, yeah. people who are impoverished or who are getting a bad deal in their workplace or, you know, people who are caught up in war zones. I think they do care. I just think that Christians have a hard time thinking through of like, you know, the, the, like what's next, like how do you build power against those things? Right. Um, that's a, that's a problem that I've at least experienced Christians have of imagining, like, how do you rally enough people together to do something about it? Or like, what would you even do? Um, well maybe, um, this is sort of moving on to a different point, but something that's, um, related, um, in the, uh, sort of these initial steps of, uh, you know, people um, rallying against a war or more aggression against Iran. There are some like interesting stories popping up that I think are worth paying attention to um, that counter the, uh, you know, rallies don't do anything um, kind of mindset. So, I mean, like you said, Dean, like uh, people in the anti-war movement went on to study things like anti-imperialism and socialism and, you know, like rallies are rallies and other kind of types of mobilization are really good because they link people together and, you know, you learn who people are and like, ideas and you get to um 
find ways to organize that um you know brings people together they're good for that that sense um but also there are there are other places where those types of connections already exist and they have um they can already demonstrate like what can be done when you are linking together with people who are against war um and uh, this is sort of an, i think an underreported thing that happened last week but uh the new brunswick longshoremen uh, a union of like boat worker kind of people um, they made the statement that they were against uh, war in Iran and that they weren't going to move uh, cargo that would like they wouldn't move uh, they wouldn't move military equipment from uh, North America to Iraq or to um, other staging areas. I think that's a really awesome thing. <laughs> that's like a yeah. really good example of like what happens when you get like, you know, just regular working people into um, situations where they can be exposed to anti-war ideas or they can kind of connect exactly with with what answer coalition is saying that like the working class of the united states or in this case new brunswick um they have more in common with the working people of iraq than they do with their own government officials and um when they kind of can feel that type of uh connection they're gonna act accordingly and you know do a big cool anti-war thing (laughs) yeah i mean the longshoremen are always like historically the textbook uh, union that you want to look at for doing extremely cool stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah. every union has its, uh, its, you know, dark spots or whatever, but uh, the longshoremen are great, especially in war efforts because they do refuse to uh, deliver these kinds of things. And the other thing is uh, the economy around the globe does take a lot of shipping by boats still today uh, to get anything done. And if nobody will move your stuff by boat, you have a big problem, uh, whether you're a military power or simply an economic power. Uh, and the longshoremen understand that as a, a unique role that they play. And they do function as a sort of labor uh, choke point in real life conflicts. Um, I don't know. I, I really geek out about histories of the longshoremen because they're just extremely inspiring uh, as a union. Um, but what's great about this is it also helps us understand the role of labor as a an element of power in society. You know, it can feel so debilitating sometimes to see politicians uh, trying to drum up wars and that kind of thing. Uh, wars that we don't vote on, right? It's not like Donald Trump asked us all if we wanted to uh, assassinate uh, an Iranian general. He just did it. Uh, the thing is, our power doesn't come from voting in representatives. Power comes from where we actually already have power, which is in the place of production, right? If we stop doing that, then everything grinds to a halt. Um, Walter Benjamin had that really famous quote that I still really love, where he says, uh, revolution is best thought of as uh, pulling a brake on a speeding train, um, getting everything to stop, to slow down. And uh, the longshoremen here, this is like one extremely small but very important example of that. And I think if Christians get together with socialists, hopefully maybe they'll find more examples of that and maybe see where in their own life, you know, you have a little more power than you might think if you can get together with other folks, other workers. The point of labor being a really good break to pull is um, it should really appeal to people who are interested in pacifism and nonviolence. I mean, like, you know, Berrigan and Dorothy Day are like, you know, you should put your body on the line. And that's true. Um, that's something, you know, that is, uh, I mean, I don't want to do it, but I mean, no one wants to do it, but it's like an activist point, right? If you're really serious about pacifism, then you have to put your body on the line, this really vulnerable way. But, you know, there are other ways of doing that too. Like, um, like refusing labor or striking or getting, you know, um, anything like within the labor movement is a really good choke, a choke point for non-violence, uh, non-violence and pacifists and stuff, because, you know, you're not having to act violently. You're just stopping something from happening. So maybe that's a good sort of like Venn diagram moment of like overlapping interests or overlapping tactics or something. So something that shouldn't be overlooked. The, uh, the importance of labor and anti-war movements. Yeah. Well, that's a fantastic transition into Dorothy Zuela getting off brand here at the end. Uh, so, um, she is an amazing theologian. If you don't know who she is, uh, she's a German theologian. I mean, she's passed away now, but, uh, she was a really significant part of, uh, the German theological scene, but also the U S scene. She taught at union seminary part-time and then in Germany part-time. Uh, and she really made a name for herself, uh, as a liberation theologian, um, 
trying to put together what it meant to be a Christian in a time of real social upheaval, but especially in the midst of the anti-war movement and uh, in terms of the, the sort of height of international solidarity in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. So I have a great little book here. If you ever find it, you should read it. It's called Of War and Love. It's a collection of essays and some really neat poems and just kind of, I don't know, sporadic writings about these two topics. Uh, and I want to just read a passage from one of these essays um, where she says this. What does it mean to cast a demon out? It means, first of all, to call it by name, to understand how its sphere of influence is constituted and what the principles are by which it operates. One of the weaknesses of traditional pacifism is, I think, that it is often unable to untangle the complex intertwinings of seemingly unrelated themes. The demon we are struggling with is not just bloodthirsty militarism or simply a need for security coupled with a disregard for human life. Militarism is an inevitable byproduct of the economic system in which we live. If the peace movement wants to go beyond mere moral admonition, it will have to offer a more comprehensive analysis than it does now, one that will show how the fates of, say, three human beings, like a Turkish worker in Berlin-Kreuzberg, a single mother in a Brazilian slum, and a bank president in Frankfurt, are interrelated in a global context. The conditions of these three persons' lives are affected, indeed dictated, by growing militarism. Uh, and I think that's just like a really impressive quote that pulls together a lot of things we were just saying, right? That if you really want to find a way of opposing war, you've got to find a way of connecting the dots uh, with how war is integrated in a capitalist economy, especially that affects everybody around the world, right? It's not just uh, the people of Iran or the people of the U.S. that get pulled into a conflict like this. It's everyone on the production line, you know, all the way from mining minerals that end up getting used in military equipment, let's say, uh, to people having to deal with the, the eventual fallout of the U.S. war machine uh, bringing its guns down on them or something. So mm -hmm. uh, just a, an important reminder of how we need to pull those things together. Yeah, it's good. Uh, can I read this last quote from Dorothy's Weather? Yeah. It's a really good one. <laughs> They're all good ones. All right. Our first step is to convert others to become active agents for peace. We have time to join together and repoliticize ourselves in light of the most important issue of our time. To do this, we need to feel within ourselves the strength that will help us overcome powerlessness. Only together can we learn that faith. We need to attend the experience that older persons have of what an arms buildup has led to twice before in this century. Uh, we have to attend to the elemental fear the younger generation feels, the fear that our earth will be destroyed to make our stand against death. We need every last person in our country. All things are possible, Jesus said. It's time that we start taking him at his word. Um, I like this so much because, I mean, you know, it was written a bit ago, but it still is extremely applicable to our situation. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, especially the younger people, the younger generation that feels like the earth will be destroyed. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. For, for different reasons, but still uh, extremely on point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, we need every last person. To, uh, we need every last person to make a stand against death, and uh, it's possible because Jesus said so. So there you go. Dorothy's Whale is great uh, in stitching together a lot of these kind of uh, ideas from the left and from the the Christian tradition of activism and social justice. So um, what she says, I think, really resonates because it is it is you know taking all these things together, um, and I appreciate that. Yeah, she does have like a really uh, complex theology, but I like these moments where she puts it in the most naive terms that you could think of. You know, yeah. Jesus said all things are possible, and that means you can oppose war. It's like, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need sure. that. I need to hear that sometimes. Yeah, that's right. Well, to sum everything up here, uh, war is really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. And I don't know many people who do, honestly. Um, I went to an anti war protest. Uh, it was fine. Like I said, we didn't like do anything crazy. There was no big actions. We just marched around and we talked and we hung out with one another. And I, I mean, we didn't stop the war. That's true. But I think it was really important. Uh, there are some people there who had never been to a protest before. Um, and, you know, maybe they'd go to another one now and maybe they'll get more involved in organizing against it. I mean, who, who knows what will happen? Um, but you do need every single person, like uh, Dorothy Zuela says, and I don't think you're going to do that without some mobilizations that, you know, maybe aren't as militant as you'd like. You got to have them just the same. So um, there are probably more 
there's always more wars, so there's probably going to be always more war protests. If you've never been to one, you should go uh, and be involved in uh, uh, doing the impossible, opposing war. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Uh, we've got a Facebook group called The Magnificast Basement. You can find a handful of uh, occasional memes and articles and uh, other people talking about things. Uh, that's really great. Uh, our music is by Amori Armstrong. We're back to that. Uh, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you all next week. Be no church, we'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now.